The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. UFC Unfiltered, thank you for getting this episode. It's Jim Norton. Matt Sarah will be back next week. He's away with Dana. And uh, we interviewed Joe Rogan's on the phone for quite a while today. Such a great, great interview. I love Joe. And Larry King calls in. And uh, he's talked to everybody. And then he has to deal with me. Poor Larry. Oh, yeah. And we curse a lot. UFC and Digital Media present UFC Unfiltered with Jim Norton and Matt Serra, powered by Digital Media. Find your voice. And now, your hosts, Jim Norton and Matt Serra. We need to change that opening. Matt's not here. He was arrested. Not a big deal. Uh, he was defecating on public property. Matt does that sometimes, and it's finally caught up with him. He's obviously still away with Dana. There, I think he's going to be back tonight. We're just missing him. So he will be on the next episodes of UFC Unfiltered. Definitely miss Matt. I mean, I like talking. I'm fine talking to, to Chris. I like you. And, you know, it's, uh, it's easy just to talk. But sure. it's like you miss your, your on-air partner. I miss Matt's energy. I miss, the, I miss Matt's pre-show dump. I'm going to eulogize Matt. <laughs> I miss... Oh, you know, if, if Matt died right now, that's what I would probably say to his wake. I'd be like, yeah, you know, he'd come in, he'd be sweating, eating a Quest bar, and he'd always let me, this is my example of what a great guy Matt is, you know, he would always tell me if I want to tinkle first that he was going to go in there and ruin the bathroom. He always thought of me. Matt what does do that. He always knows he's going to go in there and commit basically a homicide on the toilet, so he lets me go first. That's the Matt Sarah that I know, and his family would probably cry, like, that's the Matt we know from home, he's a good boy. So he's around fucking around doing uh, Dana's show, and I'm sure he's having a better time than I am. He, my underwear stuck to my asshole in New York. It's horrible. It's horrible here. We're back in the studio, by the way, <clears throat> that I've become accustomed to being in. It's a comfortable studio. It's air-conditioned. That room, what building was this year made? Fucking 1750? <laughs> yes, I believe it is. We're right above a comedy club, Stand Up New York. It's a comedy club here in New York. It's called Stand Up Labs. That's where we tape this. Now, I know I'm gonna say, I shouldn't say that because then the girls are going to show up. And they're going to be lined up outside the studio waiting to see me and the underside of Matt's sweaty chest. But uh, this room is air-conditioned, but the one in there is not. It has an air-conditioner, but it's a much larger room, and it doesn't work as well. No, it's not. It's three fat people blowing on you. (laughs) That's their (sighs) air-conditioner. I don't know why I'd say fat people. Like, that would be better or worse than skinny people. Anybody blowing on you in hot weather sucks. So my... My apologies to the heavy community. That was silly. (laughs) 
Sometimes you just say something because you think it's going to make a joke better. And um, it just doesn't. Well, something more descriptive will, right? Yeah, but, you know, I could, you know, anyone's hot breath. Oh, we have a great show. By the way, let me promote. Um, Joe Rogan is finally going to be on. He's been, Joe's really hard to pin down. He's, he's got 10,000 things going on aside from his own podcast. So I'm happy that Joe is calling in um, this morning. We have Joe and we have Larry King. Not at the same time. Even though they'd probably be great. I'm one of Joe's ever interviewed Larry King. I'm going to ask him that. Larry's not a big UFC guy. But uh, to my knowledge, he's not. But he's a fascinating person, Larry King. I've interviewed him a lot. I'm sure he won't remember me. He's fucking 82. You know who's really sharp? I'd love to get on the show. Who, again, I've talked to a lot. Is William Shatner. 84, 85 years old. And the guy is, he's busier than Rogan. All he does is project after project after project. He's fucking awesome. He's either writing a book or... I remember when he was... I, I went to Comic-Con years ago. And uh, me and my and Sam Roberts from uh, Sirius XM, and I interviewed Shatner on the ship. Uh, it was a, he was doing something called MyOuterSpace.com. It was like a MySpace.com thing, and it didn't last. But I guess they got you know Bill Shatner for the space tie-in. Oh, I see. <laughs> and we're on this boat. There was a big party on this boat, and Shatner was doing a panel. And uh, I see Lavar Burton before, because I guess he wanted to go there and see Shatner. So, of course, I asked him for a photo, and uh, he thought I was a Trekkie, because he says to me, he goes, uh, okay, but let me, uh, he was going to do something, he goes, let me complete this mission first, and then I'll, and I was like, ugh, (laughs) did he just talk to me in fucking Star Trek terms? (laughs) Let me complete this mission first. Yeah, but at that venue, that that hits nine out of ten times, more than nine out of ten times. Oh, yeah, it really does. Okay, that's probably the reaction that gets most times. Yes, sir. That's a ten four. Yeah, ten four. What was his name on that dumb show? He was Captain Kirk, right? No, uh, not Shatner was great. I'm talking about Levar Burton. Oh, I don't know. No, Shatner would never say that to me. Uh. He was Shatner, I know, not well, but you know, I've interviewed him enough. No, this was Levar Burton. I saw him. Shatner was going to do a talk. I knew I had an interview with Shatner lined up. This was Levar Burton showed up because he was in Star Trek: The Next Generation. And I forget who he played, but he was the one. I'm glad I cleared that up. I hope nobody else. That's probably just Chris. He ignores half the things I say, and I don't blame him. It really is tedious. But LeVar Burton said, let me complete this mission first. And I was really very annoyed. So then five minutes later, I see him taking pictures with some girls. He actually played Jordy LaForge. Okay. There you go. You know how many people are screaming at their speakers right now listening to this? How do you not know that? Podcast sucks without Sarah. <laughs> but uh, I guess uh, he wanted to complete his mission. So five minutes later, I see him taking pictures with a bunch of girls. I'm like, this motherfucker. So I walked over and I tapped him. And he thinks I'm a girl. And he turns around. And you've never seen a smile melt off a face faster <laughs> than when LeVar Burton saw me. He knew he got caught. He knew he had just told me he was going to complete the mission. And his mission was taking pictures with a bunch of women. So, hey, mission, you got to add one more to your mission, stupid. And then he took the picture with me. He wanted nothing to do with it. And I don't give a shit about him on Star Trek. I liked him in Roots. He played Quinta Kinte as a young, a young LeVar Burton. I played a young Quinta Kinte uh, in Africa, stolen. And then uh, that was a really well-cast movie, by the way. Uh, when you watch the original, there was a reboot of Roots. And apparently Snoop didn't like it. And he, and he tweeted something. He's like, will you stop reminding us of how bad things used to be and just make shit about... T- and he's kind of right. 
But I would love to have seen the retelling of that story. It was probably very good and probably, uh, you know, whenever they do things now, they have a bit more of a, a language. Although they dropped a lot of N-bombs back in the 70s on TV, too. I think, I think they did that as well as you could do it in the 70s. But now it just seems like things are shot a little better. Back then, everything kind of looked like a play. But if Roots, for those of you too old or too young to remember it, it was a monumental television event, you know, because everybody you knew from TV was there and you, and you knew it was a real story and it was a tragic story. And uh, seeing people you knew in that light, like, you know, back then, man, now nobody gives a fuck about celebrities because you see them everywhere. You know what I mean? Taylor Swift having her toes done in Chinatown. You know, nothing is surprising anymore. But in 1977, I knew John Amos from Good Times. I didn't know who LeVar Burton was. John Amos from Good Times. That's who he was. James Evans. And then all of a sudden he's Quinta Quinte. He's playing a slave and he's dressed like a slave. And it was a totally different light to see an actor in. So that really had impact back then when you saw these guys, you know, playing these these deep roles. You know, again, he was in a sitcom. That was how I knew him. So he played, uh, who else was in that guy that was a well-cast, uh, don't even bring, let me see, Lou Gossett Jr. played Chicken George at one point, the older version of Chicken George, I think. Am I wrong? I might, no, he played Fiddler. Sorry, he played Fiddler. The older, he played Fiddler. There wasn't the older version. They just like, I think spray painted his hair white. Back then, the makeup was not quite as good when they had to age people. Leslie Uggams was uh, Kizzy. Sandy Duncan Played a little, uh, obviously a little white girl. I don't remember her name, but she was Kizzy's friend. And then that iconic scene when fucking Kizzy spits in the water. You know, she pulls up and she, she doesn't remember her old slave or her old slave playmate. You, this is when they were older. And she's like, get me a water. And it's such a great moment when fucking Leslie Uggams goes to the well and gets this privileged bitch some water. Then just leans over. I remember, it's funny how you remember weird things from childhood. That was such an iconic moment in TV. Uh, and I'm going to go back to Roots in a second. Um, who, I, I can't remember who else was in it. Oh, Ben Vereen. Ben Vereen played Chicken George. And, uh, oh, Robert Reed, Ed Asner, who was, you know, Lou Grant from Mary Tyler Moore, played a slave ship owner. Uh, riding a slave ship, asking for a belly warmer, which was what they called a, a, a slave that he was going to have sex with. You know, you couldn't believe he was doing it. Robert Reed, Mr. Brady, played a, a plantation owner. To see Mr. Brady doing that, this was the nicest man on television. Oh, he was good to Marsha. He was good to Greg. You know, probably better to Greg than to Marsha, after what we learned about Robert Reed. But God, I couldn't believe I was seeing him in that light. So that was the weird part about seeing Roots in that. Uh, anyway, so that's, what, that's how I knew LeVar Burton. I didn't care about Star Trek. I loved him from, from that show, from my childhood. And I remember when I was a kid growing up, the first album, I'm a comedian, allegedly, I say in air quotes, Richard Pryor's my favorite. Oh, is Joe on the phone? Yeah. Oh, okay, we'll talk about this. Just remind me to get back to this. Hi, Joe. Hello. Hey, buddy, how you doing? What's up, brother? Just, uh, I was just yammering, because I'm doing this show without Matt for this last episode and this episode. So um, it's kind of fun just to yammer, but you know how you yammer, you just kind of go off on these weird tangents. So I was talking about Roots, and then I was going to talk about Robin Williams. What's going on, buddy? Nothing, brother. I are we on the air right now? Oh, yeah, yeah, we are. We are. Oh, good. I was going to talk some shit. I'm glad I didn't. Oh, no. Kidding. Uh, okay, yeah, tell me after. <laughs> we, you know how many people we've had in the serious studio, they come in, and I think they tell people that we're on the air, but it's, it's, like, it's such a weird atmosphere in there that they come in, they just start talking about everything, and then they're like, are we on? And it's like, well, yeah, the light is on. They've walked into a studio. So it's always good when they pop a little shit when they're, 
they're uh, they're walking in. When they whoopsie. Yeah, and we've had a few of those. I, I can't remember anything horrible. We have Larry King calling in later. Have you ever talked to Larry King? I mean, he'll be after you, but have you ever talked to him? Yeah, I was on his show a couple of times on, on, uh, when he was on CNN. What were you oh, on for? Guy. He's awesome. Were you on for, uh, for Fear Factor or for News Radio? Yeah, yeah, for Fear Factor. Is that a show? That came back for one season. How come you guys didn't do more of those? Because we made people drink cum. America <laughs> said no. Oh, no. All right. Well, that's why I watched it. I mean, you know, it's nice, <laughs> nice to see you people. Do you know the story? I the, do not. Uh, the people had to drink uh, donkey cum. They were playing horseshoes for donkey cum. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it got released. Uh, CN, no, not CNN. TMZ uh, got a hold of it somehow or another, and they put it on the... Uh, on their website and showing people drinking cum and uh, America said, all right, enough of you. Wow. So was that one of those things that was not going to be in the episode? It was going to be in the... Uh... Oh, no, it was in the episode. Oh, it was in the episode. Then TMZ showed everybody and they went crazy. Well, NBC approved it and everything. I mean, it was... Uh, you know, it got passed. They said, okay, let's do it. Isn't it weird how the networks... And again, when we got fired from um, CBS many years ago... They approve a bit. They approve sex for Sam, and in this case, they approve something. And then when people complain, they act like they've never heard of the idea before. Yeah, they panic. Yeah, it's, uh, it's ridiculous, but, you know, it's what they're doing. They're just trying to protect their job. I'm hoping that with things like the Internet, with the things like podcasts, things along those lines, it's, it's just a matter of time before you don't need a network anymore. And so those decisions will be made by the people that decide to make the show instead of by a bunch of people who decide to put the show on. Well, you know, the guys, when it comes to podcasting, when you look at stand-up and specials, and like when you look at what Louis did for specials, doing it on his own, and, and then, uh, you know, just kind of coming up with everything from Louis and not allowing the network, like, and, and then guys like yourself or guys like Corolla or Bill Burr who are doing these podcasts, I mean, it really has taken a lot of the power away from, uh, from whether it's the networks or the radio stations. Yeah, it's really interesting because it used to be that you needed some distribution vehicle. You needed some big thing that was going to take your idea and present it to everybody else. But now you don't need shit. You really don't need anything. It's just it goes out there. It re it's real easy. I've done a lot of podcasts with my phone. I um I recently just bought an external microphone to use with my phone, but before that I was just using the mic on the iPhone. I've done podcasts on a plane. I've done podcasts in hotel rooms. And they sound pretty fucking good. I mean, you don't need much. Wait, you'll actually plug um, a mic into the thing and just record a podcast if you're on the road or something? Yeah. All I need is my phone. I used to have this elaborate piece of equipment that I used to take with me with extra microphones and all this jazz. Now I have a microphone that just plugs into the bottom of my iPhone. And how do you interview somebody else? Can you can you put it with a kind of jacket? Sit near them. What's that? You oh, sit near them. Yeah, in a hotel room, just both sit down at a table and put it in front of you, and in, in, in between the two of you. It's amazing. It's amazing how easy it is now. So then I take that, I email it to uh, my producer Jamie, and Jamie uploads it. You know, and if you you could do all that stuff yourself too, especially if you have um, you know a good uh, uh, podcast distribution network, um, you know, like a good um, host, yeah. a website host. They make it really easy, like Libsyn is what I use. You can you could do this now with minimal effort, where it used to be you had to have, like, radio towers. Do you remember, like, I mean, you've been in radio for quite a long time, but do you remember when 
before you ever did Opie and Anthony, when you used to go to like local gigs, like in Connecticut or something like that, and they would have a tower outside the building. They'd be broadcasting. It was a 50,000-watt I mean, monolith just standing outside, or, or you'd be in a remote part of town, and that's where the tower... Yeah, it was like a little, a one- or two-story building and, and, and a 500-foot tower. Yeah, it's, it was fucking weird, right? Yeah. That, they, they had to blow it through the air, and anyone could tune it in, and if you said the wrong words, you could literally get arrested. What to you? I mean, you, your podcast, you're so successful at it. At what point, dude, you started, what, 2009... How long into it were you like, okay, this is actually something that's having an impact or is kind of changing my career a little bit? Uh, well, I remember I was at the Chicago Theater, um, and I said something on stage, and I was just referencing something that had happened in the podcast, and I said, how many guys listen to the podcast? And the whole place went nuts. Oh, wow. And I went, oh. And then it made me realize, like, this is 3,700 people in here. And they're all screaming and cheering. This is like a, probably about, I think about two years in. Because so, then, then it may, I, I'll, I'll never forget it because it made me think. Like, okay, maybe this is something that I need to really think about what I'm doing. Because it, right now, it's just this fun thing that I do. But this seems kind of crazy. And so it gave me uh, a different perspective, like almost instantaneously. You know, it's funny. You've kind of inspired me because we, you and I have talked so much off the air about this. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I have the radio thing, which um, I, I'm not sure exactly where it's going to be in October, but uh, I'm doing this. And you've made me really want to do my own podcast. I don't know why I haven't started it yet, but it's one of those things where you talk about it and it's just like such a great way you've set it up and, and do it. Um, it, it just kind of makes me annoyed at myself that I haven't actually just, like you said, picked up a microphone and started. Well, for a guy like you, Jim, it's the perfect thing because you're such a free spirit in a lot of ways. You know, you're you're very honest and you're very you're very expressive, and you have a thought in your mind, and you wanna you wanna let that thought loose. Well, when you're dealing with another company and you have somebody telling you what to do or somebody trying to steer the conversation. Like, that doesn't help you. If anything, it makes you think about stuff and worry about stuff, shit that you don't need to worry about. You know, it's all, when people listen to you, they want to hear you. They want to hear what you're saying. They don't want to hear what your producer thinks you should say. Right. You know, they, they want to hear your honest, uncensored thoughts. And there really has never been a pure form of distribution for that before podcasts. I mean, even fucking serious. I mean, you guys got kicked off the air. I remember uh, I was so pissed when that Condoleezza Rice thing went on. Oh, God, and You yeah. guys had that a homeless guy come in. Homeless Charlie. Yeah, for folks who don't know the story, this homeless guy comes in. He says some crazy shit about wanting to rape Condoleezza Rice. And you guys were just like, what the fuck? And then you get kicked off the air. Yeah. Not, I mean, like as if you were supposed to defend Condoleezza Rice. But you haven't defended any of the other people that you, you know, that people shat on when they were inside the studio. It was just some weird, arbitrary line that the studio and the people at home had decided that you guys were, were, you know, were crossing. Well, do you know what happened with that too, Joe? That was one of those the weird things. Someone told me that somebody from the uh, National Association of Broadcasters, I think it's the NAB, it's called. This was right around the time of the XM Sirius merger. And I remember that the headline read, Is the merger in danger? I heard that that was really pushed by people in regular radio who didn't want the narrative and they wanted some bad stories out there. So that was one of the things that did because they were trying to hurt the merger. And uh, Hugh Panero wanted to fire 
us. He wanted the show fired. Um, you know, and uh, the only Eric Logan, if it wasn't for Eric Logan, we would have been off satellite in like 2005, whenever that happened, or 2007 maybe. Regular wow. radio kept us on. No, that's 2007. Because terrestrial radio, we were doing double duty, that fucking torture of going in and doing uh, three hours of terrestrial, which was also on satellite, and then two hours of pure satellite. And then they wound up uh, keeping us on K-Rock, so we kept Terrestrial while we were off for the month. But if it wasn't for Terrestrial Radio, I think our careers would have been over. So that's the only good thing I could say about Terrestrial Radio. Well, I remember when you guys were doing that, because I, I used to do it with you. I used to make that walk. We would go from that's one right. studio to the next studio. We had to walk across the street. Remember that? We, yes. We would broadcast. And you were there for Baby Bird. I think you named it. It was Pat from Munaki with all of that, uh, 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 the vomiting the eggnog, that famous clip that went so crazy. I think you called it the Baby Bird. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't name it. No, it you didn't. my suggestion for him to lie down. I think Bill Burr might have named it the Baby Bird. Bill Burr was in that day? Yeah. Bill Burr was in that day. Ari Shafir was in that <sighs> day. Wow. I, it's funny. Bill was there for the Homeless Charlie thing, too. Um, he was there for, uh, for that. I, I don't think he said too much, but, uh, you forget who's in studio for the, for these moments, man. I forget these things even happen until I, like, it comes up. I'm like, oh fuck, that was 10, that was almost 10 years ago. And that's it's so crazy. That's 10 years ago. Well, that was one of the cool things about Opie and Anthony was that it was a hang that like anybody could just kind of come in. Like you had like people wandering down the hallway or something like that. And like when, when I was there once we grabbed Marion Barry, do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Oh, the Shade 45 was so pissed. They were supposed to, and for anyone doesn't know, D.C. Mayor Marion Barry, who got caught with crack in a hooker. And you went right to him, man. You, you, what did you ask him? I asked him about the crack. I'm like, <laughs> we don't have any time here. I'm like, this guy, we just pulled him in out of the hallway. And uh, I just started asking him, like, uh, what, you know, like, what, what is the deal with crack? Like, why'd you do it? Like, what, what, is, what does crack feel like? And, and then it, one of the things that was really hilarious is that he was like, I don't remember my exact questions now that I'm thinking that I'm kind of like... You said, what up. was in the pipe? What was, hey, yeah, what was oh. in that pipe? And he was like, oh, what, what did he answer? Well, he said, nobody knows what was in that pipe. <laughs> nobody knows. I was like, I think you know. Don't you know? <laughs> it was really funny because it, it was just, it was so, it was preposterous. He was just silly. It, it, and he's, but, a, he's a politician and he couldn't even answer that question. Like, he, he looked like a little kid who had been caught with his hand in the cookie jar when you asked him that. Sort of, but he had like a canned response that he had been using that, like, kind of worked, and that was what it was. Like, nobody knows what was in that pipe. Like, what, what do you mean nobody knows? Like, as if, well, you're right. We, we don't really know. Good point. Good point. Like, no, motherfucker, you were smoking crack. <laughs> do you think that uh, he is just not used to a follow-up question like that, or people just accepted that without following it up? Well, people treat people that run for office with a certain amount of respect that they don't necessarily deserve. Right. You know, and when someone becomes the mayor of a large city like Washington, D.C., most people don't go, come on, man, were you smoking crack or not? They just don't talk to them that way. They don't, like, cut right to it. They kind of skirt around it. But I was like, this guy's only going to be here for a few minutes. We've got to jump on him. And you know, I knew they were going to pull him out of here. Because when he walked in, he was like, oh, hello, hello, everyone. Like, come on in, sit down, sit down, mayor. 
And he was like, oh, okay. Like, you could tell he just got sucked into it. He didn't want to do it. He stood there in the door. Do you remember he was, I yeah. think, standing up. He wouldn't come in. We've got a few guests from Shade like that. They hate when we do that shit. When they're, 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 somebody's going in there to talk to Sway, and we just kind of, like, we kind of hijack and steal his guests for five minutes. And then they walk in. <laughs> Um, you know, it's funny. We, we talk about what people are saying. What do you think of this whole thing, man? And uh, with uh, like, you know, look, I've been a Trump guy the whole time. And even though I don't like all of his policies, I like the fact that he's just upsetting everyone in, in politics. But this whole thing where he made that Second Amendment comment to Hillary, are people overreacting to that or? Or, or what was the Second Amendment comment again? What was the exact He comment? said something to the effect, he's talking about, you know, Hillary's going to ch- change something, and uh, he's like, there's nothing that can be done about it. Well, you know, you Second Amendment people, maybe. Like, it was like a weird, un- like kind of a half-joke, half-implication that, you know, about shooting her or something. It was a really fucking bizarre moment. Um, and then you could almost feel him shift gears to get out of it. Like, I think he knew that he fucked up. Yeah, well, you know, he's used to talking shit. I mean, that's that's what he does. He talks shit. He says crazy things, and then people go, oh, he's so outrageous. He's basically using the same strategy that got him a lot of attention on that, you know, your fired show. What right. the fuck yeah, is The Apprentice. Yeah. <laughs> your fired show. Exactly. I mean, he's, what he's doing. He's, he's, just, he's being the same guy. I mean, that's what he does. So now we're seeing it in, in politics, and I don't think he has any other gears. I mean, that's that's his thing. His thing is being offensive and, and getting people to uh, step back and go, that Donald just says what's on his mind. <laughs> right. But to say, you know, uh, well, maybe you Second Amendment people, that's like saying you can shoot her. Yeah. Go shoot her. That's crazy. It is kind of crazy. crazy. He makes it hard to support him. Like, again, I, because I hate the system and I want to see the head lopped off if, 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 theoretically, but he's making it really hard because he's not even like a like a Bernie or a Ross Perot who, like, who feels outside the system but still kind of works. He's just saying things that I'm like, I just can't get behind that. It's just, it's annoying. No, he's, he's, he's saying a lot of really foolish things. I mean, that's part of his appeal, is that he's saying a lot of really foolish things, and people like it. And that's, that's one of the things that I don't like the most about Donald Trump, is the people that are really excited about him. Yeah, there's a lot of them. You know, it, it's funny. There are they're split down the middle, though. It's like there's a lot of them who are really people. Like, like a lot of the racists like him. Yeah. Um, but again, a lot of the a lot of other people like Hillary too. Like the the the, the uh, pulse shooter's father was just behind her at a rally, cheering for her. You know, they all attract shitty people. Yeah. Uh, right, but he's right. just making it hard. You do about that. He's making it hard, man, and, and it's like I don't want it to be this hard. But these are our choices, you know. We we have they're not good choices, yeah. It's a, it, you know what it is, man. It's that there's a bunch of people that they just, they just seem like assholes that like him, and it's not. I'm not saying all assholes sure. like him. A lot of my friends support him. Um, what I'm saying is that there's like this bully mentality that's going on behind his supporters that I've never seen in politics before. Like, we're going to win, and there's not a fucking thing you could do about it. And they're, like, getting people's faces. It's very bizarre. It's like there's, there's a bully thing going on that I've never seen before in politics. Like, uh, there was this, there's this video of Ted Cruz. I don't know if you've seen it, but Ted Cruz was uh, at a rally before he dropped out of the race. He was, like, right about to drop out. Yes. And um, there's this Trump guy who's standing in front of him, with a Trump sign at this rally, and he's got sunglasses on, you know, and he's like, just drop out, Ted, it's over, it's over, drop out. And it's like there's, there's something about the way he's doing it 
and I'm like, this is a different kind of political supporter. It's like the asshole white man supporter. You know what I mean? Like, hey, we finally got one of our own and a fucking white asshole. It's, there's something about him that's getting people excited that, like, it's, it's really possible that someone who's a real piece of shit might become president if they get behind him. Yeah, that guy, I remember that guy, and he, it, it almost felt like he was trolling him, but in person. Yeah, and, like, uh, but right in front of his face with sunglasses on for no reason. And Ted Cruz, in that moment, I was never a Ted Cruz fan, although I like the fact that he wouldn't support Trump because he didn't like him. It's good. If you don't like the guy, fuck him. Don't support him. But I, I, I like that Ted Cruz thought he was going to win. The, cause these guys can all win you over. Like They're all such charismatic talkers. They're very used to standing there and putting their hand on someone's shoulder and that person melting and going, oh my God, I hated you, but now I love you. And uh, he was going to try to win that guy over with his charisma. And that guy was just an obnoxious fucking troll who just hated him and wasn't going to give it to him. Yeah, it was weird to watch. It was really weird to watch because I remember remember in that moment feeling like Ted Cruz squirm. I was like, oh, I can't believe I feel like this, but that poor bastard, I actually actually feel bad for him. Hey, and you also, dude, I also wanted to comment before I forget, because I, I, I talked to my friends, and I wound up forgetting asking shit I wanted to ask. You, you re-upped for a year, only a year. What was the hesitation in doing it? Is it just you, you got a million other things you want to do? Yeah, well, I'm a huge fan of MMA, for sure. I'm always going to be a huge fan. Like, someone think, like I had this conversation with someone, they're like, are you just over it? I'm like, I'm definitely not over the sport. I love the sport. But I can be a big fan of the sport and not call the fights. And there's a lot of other guys that do a great job calling the fights. I mean, I think Brian Stan, the guy who replaces me most of the time, is awesome. There's a lot of guys that are great. Kenny Florian's great. I, I enjoy it when they do commentary. It's fun. But for me, I could be a fan and just watch. I don't, I don't have to be there to be a fan. And so that was, a, that was an issue. I was really thinking that at a certain point in time, you can't keep traveling. Like at one time, I think we did... I did more than 20 events in a year. Right. I mean, that's like every other weekend I'm fucking flying. I, I, it was just, I didn't want to do it anymore. It's like, it's not good for your health. Like, I, when I'm home for like three or four weeks in a row, I feel better. My workouts get on a good schedule. My health feels better. I have more time to, to get shit done and contemplate things. My writing improves. There's something about traveling constantly that's just not good for your health. And also, doing too many things doesn't do any of those things a service. You know, I think you can definitely say yes to too many things. And I have in the past. Like, when I was doing Fear Factor, and I was doing The Man Show, and I was working for the UFC, and I was doing stand-up, it was too much. I mean, I literally was going crazy. I was like, I am losing my fucking mind. There's no, I, I can't keep this up. I can't keep this pace up. I'm not sleeping enough. I'm working too much. And I just think that there's, there comes a point in time where you should do less stuff and just sort of enjoy whatever it is that you do do. I mean, the question always becomes like, why do you work? You, well, you work for money. You work so you can make a living. You work so you can support your family. All that stuff's good. But once you already can do that, how do you know when to back off? Right. And so I was asking myself those, my, those questions. I'm like, I don't have financial issues, so why, what, what am I doing? Like, am, am I doing this because I love it, or am I doing this because I, I've already been doing it for a long time and I don't know how to stop? And so I had to ask myself some really hard questions. And 
ultimately, what I decided is I really would miss it, but I, I would only miss it if I did less of it, you know? So I just decided to just cut it way back. So no more Fox events, no more uh, big international trips across the world. All that stuff is gone. I'm not doing that anymore. You know, it's funny you say, like, why am I doing this? I, I get, for me, um, I, I'm always afraid. Like, just as myself, I'm always afraid that one day everyone is going to wake up and look at me and go, you don't belong here. So I keep trying to juggle a bunch of stuff because I'm afraid of being exposed as not being a real comedian or not being a real broadcaster. It's irrational, but I mean, a lot of what I'm doing myself is based in, in, a, in a terror of everything being taken away. Like, I'm going to come in one day and my apartment's going to be gone and they're going to say, we've all discussed it and you don't deserve any of this. It's a really fucking irrational, stupid fear that I... I have the same feeling. I have the same feeling. I, 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 you know, someone said that to me once. Um, they were, I forget what it was, what, what the conversation was, and I forget who it was, but they were a successful actor, and they were like, my number one worry is being uh, exposed as a fraud. And they were laughing about it. I forget who the fuck it was. But I'm like, God damn, I feel the same way. Like, I think everybody feels that way. And I feel less that way now than I ever have in my life. But there's a certain part of me that always thinks... Look, someone's going to figure out how fucking easy it is to just talk. Yeah. I mean, you and I, we basically just talk. That's all we do. We talk on stage. We talk on a podcast. Fucking everybody talks. It's not like, you know what I mean? It's like what we do, we, we walk different than other people. Everybody walks. Right. But we walk with a certain strut that makes everybody want to pay attention. I mean, it, literally, it's that ridiculous. That's how ridiculous it is to be uh, a stand-up comic or to be a person who talks on a podcast or a person who talks on the radio. Well, it's uh, also the I ability... We all have that feeling. I think it's also the ability like, like to, to put it in a way where people can connect and go, oh, okay, like, I understand that too. Um, you know, it, it's so funny, the whole imposter thing or being exposed. I've been saying to myself lately, I went to Montreal this, this year, and normally that's a, a painful experience for me because I feel like a fucking loser and I suck and I shouldn't be there. The whole time people are being nice to me, I'm saying... You belong here. These are your peers. It's okay. I enjoyed it a lot more when I'm just saying that to myself. That stupid little thing I have to keep reminding myself. These people like you. It's okay. You're not here by accident. But it's really weird how that self-esteem or those old tapes play, man. It's really hard to get out of that shit. Yeah, it is weird. It is weird. It's, but it's also kind of what brings you to the dance in the first place, which is really strange. It's like you yeah. don't want all of that insecurity to go away. I mean, there's every single one of us is insecure. That's why we became comedians in the first place. That's why we continue to perform. It's just a part of what it, what it means to be a comic. But you don't you don't want all of that to go away. If you feel comfortable, if you if you really settle in and feel comfortable, you're gonna start to suck. You know, and I think we kind of know that inherently. We yeah, because you're right. That's a good way to put it. That's what got you to the dance in the first place. It, it yeah. is that weird fear that drove me to be a comic. That uncomfortability. What were you insecure? Like I see you, and I know. I mean, I literally know you about twenty years, and uh, you know, I, I never. You were never struck. I think we me. know each other even more now. I, maybe it was ninety four. We're old as fuck, dude. What I know, dude. Ninety four. I know. Doing that gig for uh, Pat something. It was the uh, quarter deck, I think it was called, in, in, in uh, Adirondacks, or, or it was in New Jersey somewhere. Um, what are you insecure about? Or what were you, at least, before you became a comic? Like, what kind of, what fear drove you? Well, I think, you know, everybody comes from some weird place. It's the only way you, you really take the effort to get on stage and to want the spotlight on you. 
you know, you feel like at some point in time there's got to be some deficit. Someone wasn't paying enough attention to you. You know, and to me, my parents split up when I was really young. I moved across the country most of my young life, so I didn't really have the same group of friends for long periods of time, so I always felt like a new kid. I didn't fit in. And then, you know, I always felt like a fucking weirdo. I just always felt that I didn't, like, all the things that everybody else liked, I didn't like. And then I got into martial arts, like, really early on. So I got, you know, then I spent most of my teenage years traveling across the country fighting. So there was, there was a, there's a lot of weirdness even to that. I mean, even though it's, uh, it gives you confidence, but it also makes you feel like, what the fuck is wrong with me? I'm flying in planes and kicking people in the head. Like, what, are, what am I doing? Like, why, why do I even do this? Well, did you fight a lot in school when you, when you were... Uh... No. No, very little. Very little, like, street fights. That, that, that wasn't, I wasn't really, I'm not, you know, I wasn't like a bully or I wasn't into, into uh, like, getting involved in confrontations. Or I definitely wasn't into, like, now that I know how to fight, going out and using it. Right. Because even though I know, I, I know how to fight, I, I'm not confident. I'm not like, I could go, like, let me just go take on these bullies and go kick them in the head. Like, no, I never thought like that. I was like, well, if everything goes horribly wrong, I think I can defend myself. It was more of that than, like, I'm going to go show these guys, you know. I don't know, man. I think, um, I think, like I said, I think all of us, every fucking person, every living, breathing, thinking person has a certain amount of insecurities, or they're a fucking idiot. Right. I mean, we are literally temporary life forms that are clinging to a spinning ball that hurls through infinity. If you're secure about that, I don't understand. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. If you feel good about that, there's something wrong with you. Well, Ray Kurzweil, I, I know you you know Ray and you've interviewed Ray. I, I hope he's right. I mean, uh, for some reason, I think his time frame is off about singularity and us all being uploaded to computers. I think he's got wishful thinking going on so he can see it. Um, but, you know, what, what do you think, man? Is, is there any truth to what he says or is he completely crazy? Well, uh, he's way smarter than me, so I don't, I mean, he might be right. But the, the, there's a lot of different camps when it comes to this longevity, life extension sort of thinking. Um, there's the Kurzweil camp that feel like you're going to be able to download consciousness into a computer. Uh, there's the Aubrey de Grey camp that believe you're going to be able to manipulate ge- genetics and DNA, and they're going to be able to figure out some way to it extend human life to some ridiculous way and then there's also the people that think that we're going to develop some sort of a virtual reality that's indistinguishable from the reality that we're we're enjoying right now i mean something's happening and it seems like when i when, when i'm really paying attention to it it seems like an event that's that's how it feels to me it feels like we're all building towards something and yes i've been thinking about this for a long time and i i think that that's what human beings probably have been doing since the moment we first invented flint tools. I think this is, I've described it this way before, but this is my, I believe that human beings are like, we are right now a worm that's in a technological caterpillar, and we are going to become some new thing. And I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, everybody's always obsessed with materialism and people are always like, God, everybody, you can't take it with you. Why does everybody care about big houses and big cars and big TVs and, you know, craziness and all this stuff that you can buy? Because materialism pushes innovation. Because if you want the newest, latest, and greatest stuff, 
that that means people have to continue to make more improved products. So the more people have a desire for the newest, latest, greatest stuff, the more it pushes innovation. Well, innovation pushes improvement. Improve, it pushes technological improvement. And if you follow that, it's going to become a part of your body. We are going to have some sort of a symbiotic relationship with either computer chips or some new form of electronics that's going to enhance the way the body performs. And then once we, come, we become normalized with that, it's going to go further and further. They're going to be able to replace parts like they're doing now. I have a friend of mine that has uh, two replaced hips. He had his uh, hips replaced. They're, that's just step one. Step two is, well, your bone is rotting out. We're going to replace your bone. I know a guy who got bone cancer, and he has an artificial bone in his left leg. His left leg, like his femur, is gone. So he has a titanium femur. Well, how long before we make a whole titanium skeleton? Right. How long before we make someone who looks like fucking Wolverine? I mean, how long before we make someone who can heal on demand? I mean, if they come up with some sort of a new technology that allows your body to recognize the moment that it's injured and it instantly seals up an injury, who's going to say no to that? What, do you want to fucking die from, uh, from some sort of a wound? Or do you want to take this new technology and, you know, you can be here to see your kids have grandchildren? Doesn't it suck that we're going to miss that? that? Doesn't it suck that we're going to miss that? Like, I, I really I don't think, think we are. You think we might I don't see think it? We are. I think we're going to see some crazy shit, Jim, in the next couple of years. I think within the next four or five years, we're going to see some truly life-breaking, uh, life-changing stuff. Are you aware of CRISPR? Do you know what CRISPR is? No. CRISPR is a new method that they've devised for genetically manipulating bodies, fetuses, and they're starting to do tests on it with. Um, I forget what CRISPR, what the acronym stands for, but um, they're starting to do tests on it in China with human fetuses. They're going to g- genetically manipulate people where like, they can remove the gene that expresses itself that causes asthma. They can remove you know, the gene that gives you blue eyes or wh- whatever the fuck right. it is, or add a gene, or subtract a gene. And that is going to be what people do in the future. It's, it's just going to happen. There's going to be this ability that people have developed where they're going to be able to manipulate bodies. That's one of those things. Now, and then the moral dilemma, because they've been talking about, well, with, with like, you know, whether it's Down syndrome or depression or all of these things that are in genetics, will it be moral or immoral? I think it's a lot of the religious thing, too. Like, well, if somebody is predisposed to be depressed or whatever, is it, it, is it okay for us to go in and interfere? I certainly think it is. Um, but a lot of people, there's going to be a huge uh, debate with that once it's possible. Yeah, no, there definitely is. And, and this is just step one. I think we're going to get to a point within you know, the next X amount of years, whatever it is, where our bodies and our minds are somehow or another connected through electronics. It might be some sort of a virtual reality world that we all can tap into. And whatever it is, it's going to improve in the next few years after that. And this is all pre-artificial intelligence, because artificial intelligence is where it gets really fucking weird. And that's also inevitable. Whether it's 10 years from now or 20 years from now, I mean, it's just a few decades away from there being something that you can communicate with that's not a person. 
Yeah, and because I think of, once the mystery of weird. once the mystery of who we are and what makes our thoughts, once we figure that out, it won't be so crazy that we can talk to a computer. Because you know, every, when you're talking, it just feels random and like I'm this special thing grabbing things from the atmosphere. But there's a, a, a chemical process that it goes through. It's not a mystery once once we figure it out. It's like all right, now we know how that works, so we'll, we'll fix something else to do it. Yeah, and I, I think. We're so used to certain improvements, you know, like we're so used to automobiles that we don't think twice. We're so used to planes. I mean, we're so used to just climbing into that tube and flying through the fucking air that it doesn't seem as bizarre as it really is. I think that those kind of improvements are going to sneak up on us. With medical science, I think they're going to sneak up on us with our ability to communicate. Like, we were talking about podcasts and how strange it is that you could just sort of just sit down and just start talking, and then you upload it. And, you know, I did a podcast the other day, and it, it got 1.8 million downloads in, like, four days. Jesus. Like, that, that's, a, that's an insane amount of people. That's an insane amount of people that can just instantly download something. Well, I think that's just... We're, we're, we're going to have the ability to upload thoughts to upload memories i'm going to be able to live a day in the life of jim norton you're going to be able to see my life like you know how people like i'd rather you, uh, see your life than you see mine believe me you, you, you'll be like how was it being jim well i can't sit i'm telling you this is, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really bad place to be joe <laughs> i never thought i'd like someone pissing in my mouth but <laughs> it does taste like popcorn he was right yeah. When I see it from his perspective, he's really, <laughs> truly enjoying it. I mean, I, I think we're going to be able to share thoughts and ideas. And I think our, our idea of what the future holds is all based on what we've so far uh, seen that they've invented and technology that's currently available. I think it's just a matter of time before some fucking mind-blowing shit just changes the whole landscape. This is UFC Unfiltered with Jim Norton and Matt Serra. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports UFC Unfiltered. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? Of course you do. With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of one button helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or your tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash unfiltered. That's quickenloans.com slash unfiltered. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. You know, one of, the, one of the things I admire about you or I enjoy about listening to you or when, when I'm on your show is that you have the conviction of your thoughts, meaning, you know, none of us are always right, but if you have something you want to say, you say it, and you're willing to risk being right or wrong at a later point. You say what you want to say. And, uh, you know, they've been talking about GSP coming back. And I remember that moment you sat with him. And, and I think, what was he talking about? Losing memory or something? And you said yeah. that you thought, and it was like, I thought like, wow, that was really an amazingly ballsy thing. And probably correct to say to him. Like the, the fact that you did that, are you ever like worried when you say something like that, that like you're way off and it's gonna, you're going to be look foolish? Or do you have the conviction of, fuck it, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong? 
Well, I, I, I'm definitely a fuck it if I'm wrong, I'm wrong guy. I mean, I'm wrong all the time. But I, I, I also say, you know, I might be wrong. I don't know if I'm right. And I try to figure out what the truth actually is. We well, stop coming back now too, or, or now there's there's all this like kind of uh, talk about him fighting again. What's he been off for three years? I'm kind of surprised that people are talking about that, or that he would even consider doing that. Well, you know, maybe he just needed some recuperation time. I mean, if you listen to the guy talk, he sounds great. I mean, he doesn't sound like he's punchy in any way, shape, or form. You know, you see, you hear certain ex fighters talk, and you're like, "Oh God, they got out too late." Right. You, you don't, you don't feel that with George. So I mean, maybe he, his body and his mind just needed some recuperation time. I mean, it's, that's entirely possible. But yeah, I mean, I like success stories. I would love it if the guy just walked away at, you know, I think he's 35. I think 34, 35 years old, and just said, "Hey, enough. I, I was." The greatest welterweight of all time, and uh, I'm going to step back now and relax. Yeah, I think Matt wants him to stay gone, too. Because then Matt's technically the last guy who's beaten him, I think. So I think Matt wants him to not come back either. Because I, I think Matt Sarah should have that on his, his resume. And it seems like, because the reason I'm thinking of him lately, besides the fact he's been talked about, is Tyron Woodley kind of said that uh, he kind of called him out uh, and, and Diaz. And it's like, there's this whole thing now of fighters almost picking their opponents. Um, yeah, and, and, and is that a, a bad thing? I mean, guys are saying this is who I want to fight and kind of not dealing with the rankings? Well, most of what it is is just talk. So I don't think it's a bad thing because most of what it is is just guys that are, you know, they're just trying to drum up business. I mean, what Conor McGregor showed that the more shit you talk and the more exciting it is when you talk shit, the more money you make. Right. And so I think a lot of people are realizing, like, hey, I'm not going to sit around and say, I'll fight whoever the UFC puts in front of me. No, like, talk some shit. Get people talking. I mean, what Tyron Woodley's done is brilliant. He's, he called out the two biggest draw gates or two biggest uh, uh, draws in the history of uh, the welterweight division, Nick Diaz and George St. Pierre. Those are the guys that put asses in seats. So he's called those guys out. He's like, look, come on, I'll fight you guys. And... If they want to do it, it's a perfect fight to make because, okay, here you've got this guy, Tyron Woodley, this super impressive champion, and, you know, now he's going to fight George St. Pierre who's coming back. Holy shit, when, uh, when can I watch this? People are going to sign up for that. If people find out that, find out that Nick Diaz is making a comeback and he's going to fight Tyron Woodley for the title, holy shit, where can I watch this? It's like these are controversial, interesting characters. So he's really smart in how he's decided to start the first, you know, month of his uh, his title reign. Just start just call out the fucking people who are gonna make you the most amount of money. Yeah, and get the most eyes on it. And then you get yeah. things like uh, Bisping is gonna fight uh, Henderson the second time, and uh, people say he kind of uh, Jacare should have got the shot next. Is he injured or or did they jump him? They jumped him. I listen. I kind of like it. I like it because this is what I like about it. It's very rare that a guy like Dan Henderson at, I think he's 46, yeah. at 46 years of age, knocks out a fucking animal like Hector Lombard yeah. the way he did. And he's in a position where a guy that he knocked out in the brutal, most brutal knockout of his career, not only the most brutal knockout of his career, it's part of Dan Henderson's logo. Part of his logo is him flying through the air. It's a direct silhouette of the time that he knocked out Michael Bisping and then flew through the air and smashed him in the face while he was already unconscious and stiff on the ground. 
Have you seen a more brutal knockout than that? I've never seen a rougher knockout than that one. It's the roughest I've ever seen. The only thing that's close is uh, Edson Barboza knocked out Terry Edom with this uh, head kick in Brazil. He wheel kicked him in the head, and it was like the perfect spinning heel kick to the jaw. I mean, he went down like he got hit with a sniper rifle. I think it was horrible. Um, but yeah, but, they, but he only got kicked once, though. I, th- I think the yeah. worst part was was, uh, and it was funny. Right before that, if if I remember that, this was one of the times where I just thought that like, you were such a good fucking commentator because right before it, you're like, if he keeps moving, I think Bisping was moving uh, to the left, and you said if he keeps moving, he's moving right into Henderson's right, and literally less than twenty seconds later, Bisping was out because uh, of Henderson's right. Yeah, he was making some mistakes. He he was really tensed up, and I think part of part of what it is is that Dan scares the fuck out of people. When when you're fighting Dan, you realize that at any moment you zig when you should have zagged, you make a left, you should have make a right, and he's going to knock you dead. And the kind of power that he possesses, you you see it like really quickly when guys fight him. They get hit a couple of times and they just go, "Oh fuck." They just realize like this the power is a weird thing because it's not like weightlifting. Like if uh, if you lift weights and someone else that looks like you lifts weights, you guys could like achieve similar numbers. Like you know you might be able to bench press 185 and another guy could bench press 185 and you look similar. But there's there could be a guy that looks just like you that has fucking retarded knockout power and it doesn't make any sense. I mean Dan Henderson obviously is a strong guy. He's obviously a physically like tough guy. But that's not what makes him hit so hard. It is a, an inherent ability that we don't understand that makes someone a knockout puncher. And either they have it or they don't have it. And you can look like a fucking completely normal person, but you can have this really bizarre ability to just knock people completely unconscious with one shot. And a lot of times people don't realize who has it or doesn't have it until either you see them hit something, like you see them hit a bag, or until they hit you. you know, and Dan Henderson's got it. He definitely does. What, what do you, besides the obvious conditioning, like when you look at guys like ben Han, uh, uh, Dan Henderson or, or Roy Nelson, who, it seems like these guys who can hit so hard just kind of rely on that one punch after a while. And, and why has Henderson been so successful? And a guy like Nelson seems to really be struggling a lot lately. Well, first of all, you know, Nelson is overweight. And Nelson could easily be fighting as a, as a middleweight. So he could be fighting in Dan Henderson's division. No bullshit. That's not an exaggeration. Like, if you looked at, at Roy Nelson's body and, and said, okay, I'm going to get you to the, the, the right dietitian, and we're going to straighten all this out, we're going to get you to your optimal weight, and we're going to have you fighting at a weight that's really the best for your career, it'd probably be 185. You know how fucking crazy that is? Wow. What is, what is he now, 260, 250? He's probably about 245, 250, but, you know, out of that weight, you would cut 30 pounds of useless fat, like, really quickly. And then he's down to, you know, 220, somewhere around then. So if he's down to 220, that's what a lot of these fucking guys are before they cut weight and, and start getting down to 185. So then he starts to, I mean, if you just look at his frame... Then he starts to really concentrate on eating healthy and, and doing a lot of cardio and making sure that he watches his calories correctly. Then you're bringing him down to like 210, right? Now he's 210 and ripped. 210 and ripped is what a lot of these guys that fight at 185 are. They weigh about 25 pounds more than that. 
and then they start, they dehydrate themselves. They they severely restrict their caloric content and their caloric intake. And then what they do is the, the week before the fight, they slowly dehydrate themselves down. Then the last day or two, they really dehydrate the shit out of themselves. They get to the the fucking door of death, literally. And then uh, they step on a scale. But Chris Weidman, Chris Weidman's a good solid 200-plus pounds. So's Luke Rockhold. Luke Rockhold's even bigger than that. Weidman actually lost a little bit of weight. He got a little leaner. Like some guys decide that it might be better to be leaner and to have less mass to lose so they can perform better inside the octagon. My point being that Dan Henderson is fighting at a, a normal weight for him, whereas uh, I think that Roy is talented as, as he is. I mean, his, his, his ability to compete as a heavyweight is astonishing. Yeah. I mean, he is this guy who I knew Roy from back in the day. He was a successful jiu-jitsu competitor. That's kind of what everybody knew him as. He was just a really good grappler. And to see him all of a sudden become this heavyweight knockout artist is kind of crazy. But Roy could easily be fighting as a light heavyweight, easily, at 205. And I think, honestly, if you sat him down with a guy like Mike Dolce or something like that or a George Lockhart, someone's an expert in weight cutting, I bet they could say that they could get him down to 185 if he listened and they, you know, they gave it a year. And uh, we, it's funny because we had Eddie Alvarez came in and sat with me uh, uh, a couple of days ago. And I was surprised to learn that we, we were talking about Connor and going up in weight. Eddie was like, no, he just cut less to fight Nate than he would have. And Eddie said that he walks around at 182, if I'm remembering correctly. And what does he fight at 155? So yeah. is, that, is that really what is happening with, with guys like Connor? They're just cutting less and staying at a higher weight? Yeah, 100%. Connor's never 145 pounds for more than a few minutes. I mean, that's when he makes the 145-pound weight limit, it's super dangerous, and it's super temporary. I mean, he's, he looks terrible when he's weighing in. So to call him the 145-pound champion is, you know, it's, it's kind of ridiculous that they still do this, that everybody dehydrates the fuck out of themselves, gets on the scale, and then does it, you know, in a way that they can replenish enough fluid so that 24 hours later... They're, they're in a cage fight. It's fucking retarded. It's like one of the dumbest things about the sport. And the fact that everybody does it is crazy. It's, insane. it's completely insane. But when you're dealing with, like, the elite of the elite, it's almost necessary because very few people can compete at their walk-around weight because the other people are dehydrating themselves so much that when you're competing, you're competing against a guy who, you know, might be three, four inches taller than you, might be a natural 15, 20 pounds heavier than you. Right. You, it's just too much of an advantage. What, it factors in. What do you think? You know, it's funny. I didn't realize they were doing earlier weigh-ins. So I'm like, why the fuck are guys jumping on scales in their sneakers? Um, and then I was like, oh, it's probably earlier weigh-ins. How much earlier are they doing the weigh-ins? And what do you think about the early weigh-ins as, and also the not allowing them to hydrate with uh, IV? Uh, I think the earlier weigh-ins are good. I think the not allow them to hi- not allowing them to hydrate with IVs is bad. I don't I don't like that. Oh, I thought you were but, for that. Okay. No, I think not allowing them to hydrate with IVs it makes it dangerous because you you have a less. See, there's a lot of debate about this, and a, a lot of people say that it is more effective to uh, rehydrate orally than it is to rehydrate with IVs. My concern is not just rehydrating, but also rehydrating the brain. I think one of the big issues with the weight cutting is that it takes more than 70 hours for your brain to rehydrate. 
Now, I, don't, I haven't seen anything that shows that it's more effective to rehydrate with the brain orally than it is to do it with an IV. I think pretty much most people feel like the, the best way to rehydrate the brain is with IVs. If that is the case, and I'm not sure it is, but if that is the case, then I think that it's kind of silly to, um, to, to ban the IV. To ban the IV, the good thing about it is that somehow or another, it's supposed to be able to prevent people from using PEDs because you can use the IV to mask PEDs, I think, in some way. Really? So the fact that it's keeping drug cheats from being able to compete while they're on steroids, well, I like that aspect of it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's really weird to see Jones out again. Um, yeah. And all these people, uh, who else just got, Chad Mendez just got uh, popped. What, what are these guys fucking doing? And I, I asked this to somebody else too, when they know USADA is taking sample, like what, what, what are people thinking to do anything questionable now that they know that they're more than likely going to get caught? That's a good question. You know, I think with a guy like John Jones, John Jones is just a wild motherfucker. That's what I think. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's so goddamn good. I think he's a wild dude. I think he likes to party. I think he gets crazy. And I think he makes bad decisions sometimes when he's doing those things. And I think that's exactly what we're looking at. I think John has, has made some pretty critical errors in his life. And um, this is a big one. You know, whatever the fuck he took or why he took it, I don't know. I mean, I've heard all sorts of speculation. John hasn't talked about it. No one's released whatever the supplement was or, you know, whatever it was that could have possibly caused him to test positive. It's super unfortunate, though, because it's happening to one of the most talented guys ever in his prime. And they're going to remove him from the sport for like two years. And then when he comes back, oh, fucking Christ, man, all the shit that he's going to have to deal with and the pressure and the stress. And you, you saw that pressure and the stress that he was under when he fought Ovin St. Prue. You know, and then the financial drain, taking away his ability to make a living during the prime of his career. There's so many things that are happening to him right now that are really, really unfortunate. Yeah, two you know, years, a long, long time. And, and I, when I saw him in the lobby of a hotel uh, with, with Matt, actually, and, and Dean Thomas, we were just chatting for a minute, and he was like, hey, man, I'm hoping for six months or whatever, but it, it, have they given him the two years yet or no? No, I don't think there's been a sentence yet. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what it is. I don't mean, you know, he's, he took something, uh, allegedly, something called clomiphene, and what clomiphene is is a... Um, Clomiphene is uh, um, an anti-estrogen. It's like an estrogen blocker. Right. And guys take it when they've taken steroids to recycle uh, their endocrine system to get their endocrine system fired back up again. That's one of the ways to get your body to produce testosterone more efficiently is to, um, to take an estrogen blocker. And so some have speculated that that's because he was on steroids and this is what he took to try to get his system back in order. Who fucking knows, man? The problem is all these goddamn supplements that people buy from like GNC and, you know, Muscle Build 5000, these things that they sell at, you know, vitamin stores, a lot of those things have fucking steroids in them. A lot of them. A lot. Like the USADA page, if you go to the USADA webpage, they, they detail. I had uh, Jeff Novitsky on the podcast, and he took us to the page. We could go over all the different supplements that are currently containing and, and have been proven to contain steroids. It's fucking crazy. There's hundreds of them, hundreds and hundreds of different things you could buy off the shelf that have steroids in them. 
So you, if you buy something, you go, oh, this doesn't have anything illegal in it. I'll just take this. This might help my performance a little bit. This might give me a little bit of an edge. There's a lot of those things that people take that turn out to be banned substances, unfortunately. And, and what do you think about a guy like uh, like Mark Hunt's one of my favorites. I, I don't think he fought a good fight. I, Brock did better than I thought he would do. I, I think I, I was surprised at his ability to keep him down. Uh, I thought Mark would at least uh, really floor him coming in, and he was not able to. But he went kind of crazy, uh, I should say uh, angry, after Brock tested positive, and he wants all of his money. And, and, and uh, Does he have like a legitimate claim on that? Well, I mean, he, he definitely should be legitimately pissed because the guy fucking cheated. You know, he fought this guy, and this guy wasn't clean. And, yeah, I mean, he definitely should be legitimately pissed. But you know, when you say that he didn't fight a good fight, I think Brock fought a great fight. That's the problem. Okay. Brock's a fucking gorilla, man. <laughs> when you're around that guy, you realize how goddamn big he is. He is fucking huge. He really is. A, he's enormous, man. And he's such a freak athlete. I mean, and, you know, and he popped for steroids. He popped for the same exact thing, actually, that John did. He popped for clomiphene. But his situation is a little, little weirder, obviously, because you look at him and you go, well, come on, that guy's fucking clean. And then you saw him in the WWE. He was even bigger. He looks fantastic at, you know, I think he's 38 now, somewhere around there. It's, um, you know, it's most likely he was doing something and he got caught. And what do you think? That it, it's it's funny. It's like we had all these long title reigns. You had like Silva, you had uh, GSP, Aldo, uh, Cruz, and, and Ronda. Now it, the title is just changing hands a lot. It seems like people are, are, are a lot of them are losing in their first defense. Is that just because there's so many more people fighting now, and then it's it's become a bit more equal because the competition is just so cl- much closer? Or uh, what do you think that is attributed to? There's definitely a factor of there being better talent now than ever before. That's definitely a factor. There's, there's just way more challenges. You look at any given weight class, like 170 is a perfect example. You know, you see um, Tyron Woodley now as the champion. He's calling out GSP and Nick Diaz and, you know, Wonder Boy is pissed. All these other people that are waiting in line are pissed. But when you look at the title landscape, there's, there's so many fucking talented guys. The divisions are stacked with killers, like 185. Everybody's pissed that Michael Bisping is going to fight Dan Henderson. Well, what's interesting about that is that if he doesn't fight Dan Henderson, look at all the people that are waiting in line. Chris Weidman, Luke Rockhold, Jack O'Ray, Yoel Romero. I mean, God wow. damn. There's a fucking like a list, a laundry list of assassins that are waiting to take out everybody in every weight class, other than Mighty Mouse. Mighty Mouse has the potential to be the longest-running, most dominant champion in the history of sport. Because Mighty Mouse has essentially already cleaned up his division. I mean, he's fighting guys that, you know, if you, he's supposed to fight Wilson Hayes uh, before he got injured. I, I think the line on that was at least 8-1. to one. I think I read that at one point in time, that it was 8-1. to one. And that's probably super generous. I would say it's more like 20-1. to one. I mean, Mighty Mouse is a fucking just a dynamo, an incredibly talented, incredibly technical, the most technical fighter ever. And there's no one on the landscape that looks like a big threat. But there could be, while we're having this conversation, this could be some 19-year-old kid right now that's knocking someone out in some small show in Idaho or something like that, and this guy winds up being the guy in a few years. That's entirely possible as well. It's just something about this sport 
that right when you think you've seen it all, some new person comes around that has new abilities, and they're just so much better than anybody we've ever seen. And what do you, and what do you think about him? Is there a possibility he moves up in weight, uh, or, or there's a super fight with, uh, with, with Dominic Cruz? Yeah, that's totally possible. It's also possible that Dominic Cruz moves up in weight and fights Aldo. I think that's entirely possible as well. Ooh. I think there's a lot of fights you know, that they can make. I honestly think that we don't have enough weight classes. I really do, and I think, I think it's a giant issue. I think there's too many weight classes that have big gaps, and we're used to these weight classes, so we're just going to leave them alone. Like 85 to 205. That's 20 fucking pounds, yeah. man. That is so big. And then there's 225, or 205 rather, to 265. I think this should be like a 225. This should be like a, a middle heavyweight or something like that. And then this should, be, this should probably be a super heavyweight, people above 265. It's kind of weird that we put a weight limit on the, the biggest, baddest motherfucker in the world, supposedly, the heavyweight champion. And what, and what do you think it would be, like a, like a super middleweight or something, but somewhere between 185, like, you know, maybe, what, maybe a 195? Yeah, I think every 10 pounds is probably a good start. Like 171, or, you know, probably do like 55, 65, 75, 85, 95, 205. Do it like that, you know, and have more champions. I just think the UFC is so overwhelmed right now with fights and title fights and, you know, cards that they have to put on <clears throat> that it's hard for them to um, really envision doing something uh, that's involves even more weight classes. But I, I think that's probably the right move when it terms, in terms of, like, giving guys the opportunity to, and women, too. There's only two weight classes for women. You know, but giving them the opportunity to compete in uh, a weight class that suits their body. What does Cyborg fight in? Does she fight in uh, bantamweight? She fights 145. She really can't make 135. So, um, you know, she's been trying to get someone to fight her. Leslie Smith, the woman who fought her last, fought her at a catch weight. She fought her at 140. Um, but I think that, you know, really there should be a 145-pound weight class for her. That's what she really should be competing at. I mean, she's a big girl. When she cuts weight to get down to 140 is what she did for the last fight, that's a brutal cut. And it's not dang- I mean, it's not healthy. It's dangerous. And then, you know, uh, Ronda obviously has not fought since her loss. And I know she had other stuff she was doing. But, you know, does it seem like when some people, like, they, there's such a, you know, I'm, I'm my whole self-esteem or my whole feeling is based in being the champion or being undefeated, and, and can that just throw, like, a real monkey wrench into the psyche of a fighter to finally lose? Oh, yeah. It, well, it can also light a fire, too. Sometimes a fighter loses and they come back better than ever. Like George St. Pierre. Like, when Matt Serra knocked oh, right. him out, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to him because he realized he can't just fuck off. You, you have to treat this thing like... You are a, a challenger. You have to treat this thing like it's one of the most difficult things you're ever going to do. You can't just go into a world title fight thinking that you're the shit. But, you know, it's uh, everybody's different. Everybody's motivation is different. So everybody has different goals. I mean, she, her goal might have been to be as awesome as she can be and then make it into the movies. If that's uh. the case, it seems like she's kind of done that. But, you know... Where is it going to lead her, and what's she going to do in the future? I mean, all these questions are we're going to we're going to get answers to them eventually. But right now, it's uh, it is you know it is a weird thing. I mean, you're you're watching this woman who was the top draw in the sport, the biggest fucking name ever in women's fighting by far. Yeah. I mean, she really was like there'd never been anybody like her before. This 
female ass kicker. Like, who the fuck is... There's never been one of those before. So all of a sudden, she comes along, and she's just smashing girls and flipping them on their head and arm-barring them in 13 seconds, and everybody's like, holy shit. Like, she loses once, and then silence. And it's been silent now for... Uh, I think that fight was, I want to say, November. So, you know, we're coming up on a year now. I mean, right now we're in August, September, October, November is only three months away. So it's been a long time where she has been sitting back and, you know, trying to figure out what she's going to do with her life or being, you know, busy with her obligations. She also had knee surgery. Oh. You know, but I'm, I'm curious to see what her next move is going to be because she's a dynamic human being. She's fascinating to me. So, I, I, you know, I, like a lot of other people, I'm very curious. But if she just wants to have babies and, and kick back and never fight again, hey, man, nobody can ever take away from her what she did. What she did is pretty goddamn impressive. Yeah, she opened the door for a, a tremendous amount. There's so much more interest in it now than there was just because of her. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, now Holly's, a, you know, is a main event uh, fighter or a co-main event fighter. And, you know, that, that never would have happened before, Rhonda. Yeah, no, I agree with you. All right, buddy. Well, we got a, uh, we got Larry King calling in, and uh, I'm Fuck happy. We, Larry, what's that? I love Larry, dude. Uh, I yeah, guess we got good a, dude. I'm, I'm really happy we finally got you on, dude. Um, and now, when you're in New York, please come in. We'd love to have you in. In, in uh, Matt's bummed that he missed this. Thanks, brother. I would love to be there, man. And uh, definitely, when we come to New York, well, we're going to come to New York for uh, in November for uh, the Madison Square Garden show. So I'll come in then for sure. Okay, and uh, hopefully I'll see you out in L.A. when I get out there, too. Definitely, definitely. All right, buddy. All right, Th- brother. Thanks, Joe. Talking, man. Take care. All right, you too. I love Joe. He's such a... It's like you just talk to guy about anything. Like, the only reason we had to stop is we have Larry King. Like, I literally just wanted to keep asking him fucking computer questions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was great. That was an awesome interview. He's just fucking awesome. Uh, really good guy, and I do think he's the best announcer in sports. Even if you don't like UFC. I've watched UFC with people that weren't that familiar with it, and when you watch or listen to him... Uh, color commentating, or, or you know, was he the lead commentator, or color commentator? He's I never the color know. commentator, I guess. It's uh, he's the John Med, but uh, it's so informed and it's such a hard sport to do. It's moving so quickly. Like soccer, I think is a hard sport to do because even though there's just one guy kicking a the ball, there's so many fucking guys. It's constant hockey, hard to do. Um, you know what else is hard to do? Sleep. Very hard to sleep. A lot of people say, Jim, you're a sleepy boy, and I say, yes, I am. I'm tuckered out. Night after night, two people lay in the same bed, but when it comes to buying a new mattress, only one of them gets their way. That's how it is, and it's going to usually be her. We all know that. Until now, by the way. Introducing Helix Sleep, where you can buy mattresses online, customized for both of you, for hundreds of dollars instead of thousands. That's a good idea. That's nice to read. Go to helixsleep.com. Unless you're busy, then do it when you get home. If you're driving, don't do it right now. We'd hate to have you hit a pole. Answer a few simple questions based on four key preferences. And the result's going to be a custom sleep profile used to build the most comfortable mattress you're ever going to sleep on. Your mattress is going to arrive at your door in a week. Shipping's 100% free. Not 50% free. Not 37% free. 100% free. And for couples, Helix is going to customize each side of the mattress, personalized to suit each of your bodies the way both of you sleep. As I've said before, I'm a tinkler, as Joe alluded to during our interview. I'm up and down in the bed, up and down, up and down. I always have to fly in the aisle because I pee so much. So whatever partner I have, and I don't, I don't make that gender specific, but whatever partner I have in bed is annoyed by me, getting up constantly. So uh, this is a great idea to customize both sides of the mattress for yourself. Helix customers report a 30% improvement 
in overall sleep quality. That's amazing. I'm actually fairly well rested today. You probably all hear, Jim, you're bubbly today. You're not wrong. It's because I didn't have to wake up very early. But normally when I have to get up and do radio in the morning, I suck in the morning. I'm worthless in the evening as well. Maybe I'm the problem. You have a hundred nights to try it out. Here's the best part. They even highlighted this in yellow. hundred nights to try it out. If you don't love it, not like it, not think it's mediocre, if you don't love it, they're going to pick it up for free and give you a 100% refund, no questions asked. I don't know if they'll ask you any questions. Would you sign this? So they might ask you that question. That's why everyone from GQ Magazine to Forbes, all they're talking about is this Helix Sleep. Or they're, they're talking about it. They're talking about other things, too. I would be lying if I said that's all they're talking about. What's going on at GQ? Helix Sleep! All right, sorry. It's probably not that radical. Go to helixsleep.com slash UFC. That's how they know that you deserve the $50 off your order they're going to give you. helixsleep.com slash UFC. That also gets me and Matt a little bit of credit. How about some credit for the boys for once in our lives? Helixsleep.com slash UFC. You know, I keep forgetting to do I keep forgetting to plug my gigs. I'm so bad at this. I have a great popular podcast building in popularity. Certainly not Joe Rogan experience, but we're getting, you know, some listeners. When you when you go, review us and rate us. We went up in the rankings just because we got a few more reviews. I don't know how that shit works, obviously. But I just booked, I'm gonna be in Australia coming up in September. And I literally just booked uh Nyack, New Jersey for September 29th through October 1st. Nyack, New York, because I'm shooting a special, so I'm warming up for that. I have Pittsburgh in September. I have uh, Minnesota. I have Australia. And I have Buffalo, New York. I really should have began with Buffalo. You never end with Buffalo like it's the headline city. You mentioned Buffalo in passing. You said it a little disappointed. I got to be I shouldn't have said it like that. And I have Buffalo! I do love these gigs, though, and I'm doing some comedy clubs. I've been on a theater tour, but it's about warming up. It's about getting ready to shoot this special. I'm not even allowed to mention where the special is yet, but tickets will be on sale probably within a week. I'll be able to promote it and mention it. Nyack was just added. I should have said this at the beginning of the podcast, but as you all know, I'm a goddamn fool, and I don't always plug things the way I should. And by the way, uh, before I forget, big Twitter news, you know, because everyone's been saying to me how great Eddie Alvarez was on the podcast. Joe's an exception to the rule as far as being amazing on the phone. He's great on the phone. It's hard to do. I always want to have guys in here. So we had, um, we had uh, Eddie Alvarez came in. He was a really, really fun guest to talk to. But he complained about the toilet uh, being uh, uneven. Like the, 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 the seat doesn't go all the way to the edge. So if you're always afraid that your helmet's going to fall in and get cut off. So I've tweeted the toilet seat picture. So just go and check it out on Twitter. It's a really great social media integration. I was just going to say, that's really great social engagement. With that's the why they love me on this podcast. They say because Jim is really good at social media. Not only did Eddie Alvarez talk about the toilet, but 36 hours later, Jim tweeted a photo of it. I mean, if that's not being on top of things, I'm doing it as we talk. This is the awful toilet seat. I literally have to shit so badly right now, but I'm not going to. I'm waiting for, to talk to Larry. Larry, I hate shitting in public. Which is psychotic of me. Are you, are you, can you do that? I hate doing it. I can do it, but I don't often. Like, we, if I really have to, I will, but it's not my uh, favorite thing to do now. No, and I, and I literally could have sat down before, but I'm sitting on my thighs. Like, I might have been sitting on my ass. Because my asshole, I'm afraid it's, if I, it's like a kickstand. I'm turtling. <laughs> and I don't mean to talk about shit on this podcast too much. It's very childish. 
You know, you could have got. I could have guarded the door for you. I mean, there's a couple oh, of I don't layers of protection some, there. But yeah, yeah, I don't care if somebody knocks. You're just uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, I'd rather be home. Gives me something to look forward to in my life. You know, folks, I don't have a lot to look forward to. Um, getting home to my own toilet is something I absolutely look forward to doing. So uh, we have Larry King coming, uh, calling in shortly. I'd rather interview him in person. Oh, God, I hate these little fucking buzz noises. Where's my Larry King prep sheet? I'm going to say, so Larry, you're a broadcaster. I hope he's good on the phone. I've never talked to him on the phone. Yeah, I mean, the guy's been doing it for how long? I'm sure he's going to be great. I like, that's why I like Chris. Chris is very upbeat and positive. I'm, a very, I'm, I'm what you call a negative Nelly. I'm not a positive guy. I can't even drink any more coffee. You know, my friend Jim Wise is a comedian. He used to write for Jay Leno. And I, had to, I was doing The Tonight Show one time, and I, I think I had to shit. And Jim said, what do you got, that telltale heaviness in your lower back? And it's the best description I've ever heard of that feeling. There's a telltale heaviness. And I'm going to mention that to Larry. Oh, okay. <laughs> Nothing will shock him. No, right? I mean, he, he has been doing this for, what, 40 years, 50 years? I mean, it's probably he's an amazing here, broadcaster. He's, he's a fun guy. Can we call him? Can we call Larry? Yeah. No, I don't have the number. He's going to call in in a couple of minutes. Oh, boy. We got to wait for Larry? Yeah, I guess his people are going to set up the call. What if he forgets? No. What if he he blows it off because he doesn't like me? I I doubt it. He's going to call. He might have said no then. He wouldn't have blown it off, right? No. I mean, that would be kind of funny if he was like, yeah, set it up, and then just decided to call us. I got on the train this morning, and um, you know, I said to myself, you know, Matt would be dying in this weather. He really would be. Because Matt's big thing is like he wants to be unique. He wants to look good. He wants to feel good. So I said, Matt, I got a deal for you. And he said, uh, what is it? I said, Matt, you want to get a one-of-a-kind made-to-measure suit? And I said, who do you think it's going to be from? And Matt went, Indochino. And I cried because I missed that about Matt. These reads are not the same without him. Chris tried it on the last podcast. They almost canceled all the ads. It was a dismal failure. No disrespect to you, Chris. No, I got a stern talking to. People didn't like it. You did a good job, but Matt is just better. Indochino! It's reinventing men's fashion. And it's a made-to-measure suit. Obviously, the best suit you're ever going to own, you dopes. So suit up. And I say dopes with a wink and a kiss. (laughs) You customize the details you want. You pick your lining, your lapels, your personal monograms, and more. 14, not 13, not 15. 14 unique measurements. Go into making a suit that fits you perfectly. You can't go wrong with a well-crafted 100% Menino wool suit. And also check out their made-to-measure dress shirts and men's accessories. Made-to-measure suits, they're now affordable and they're available to the masses thanks to... And this is where I'm, I'm actually looking at Matt's empty chair. Indochino! Looks great. It feels great. When you look good, you're going to feel better. You're going to feel confident. Here's the deal, and there's a money-back guarantee. Today, our listeners get any premium suit for just $399. That's up to 50% off at Indochino.com. Now, you got to enter UFC at checkout, plus the shipping is free. There's no reason not to try your first custom-made suit with a deal like this. It's a great deal. The suit's a classic from their premium collection. It's going to look good. It's going to feel good, and it's going to last. That's important with this suit that it lasts. You don't just wear a suit to one event. You're not Jay-Z. You can't afford to do that. That's Indochino.com, promo code UFC for any premium suit for just $399 and free shipping. Matt, Indochino, your look, your way. It's not the same without Matt Sarah. I think we can all agree on that. It was interesting to hear Joe talk about weight classes, too. Should they be? I never thought of that, obviously. That's why I'm saying it was interesting to hear Joe say it. But, uh, you know, a super middleweight or uh, between uh, heavyweight and light heavyweight, 
and then over. Yeah, maybe they do need more. I think that's, again, part of the thing is UFC is expanding so rapidly and there's so many people fighting and there's so many interesting fights. By the way, in the pound-for-pound greatest, and I forgot to ask Joe this uh, because he seems to like when they can match up who they want, but uh, I talked to Eddie and Connor being ranked number four. Seems a little odd to me over Yunjechik, who's number seven. Mm, Sure. Why would she be ranked number seven? Um, I can see why Aldo might be ranked below Connor because he lost to him, but I I don't know why... uh, she is ranked number seven when she is undefeated. Yeah, I mean, the, with the rankings, though, this is the thing. I mean, I understand well, the argument. Waller's about, 11? How is Waller 11? That's the thing. It's in the moment. You know what I mean? It's like right now, it's just a flash. But tomorrow, if Connor loses, he's not going to be number four. He might sink down to 15 or whatever. You know what I mean? It all depends on... on it's really just a snapshot of what is going on right at this minute. But he so. he did lose in, in, in number four. Oh, we got, do we have Larry King on the phone? I hope so. Hello. Hi, Jim. How are you, buddy? Okay, I'm ready. Okay, good. We're on the air. Uh, where Where are you right now? At my home. Oh, you're in L.A.? Yep. Okay. Uh, and, and you're enjoying, you just celebrated your 600th episode of Larry King Now on the July the 25th. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it keeps on. I thought I could uh, retire, Jim, after all those years of it. I missed it too much, and I was able to put together this uh, wonderful uh, internet network uh, with Carlos Slim as a partner, and my wife conceived the idea. And now, in our fifth year, it's really worked great. I love. And let me kind of a pioneer, you know, with cable and CNN and internet, national radio as the first national radio talk show host. It was I've been sixty years in the business. It's kind of incredible. How, how long were you off for, Larry, before you decided to do this, or before you said, "Look, I can't. I'm not meant to retire." How, how long did you? What was a, of a break did you have? Well, I was off for about, I was off for about six months, seven months, and and the the thing that kept me back was the night Osama bin Laden was killed. I was home watching television, uh, enjoying my kids, and. Uh, when that happened, I wanted to get up and run somewhere and broadcast, and, and there was no way to go. And Carlos Slim had mentioned to me that he'd like to get something started, so I jumped at the opportunity, and glad I did. I, I'm not a person who can retire. So now I'm doing more than I ever did. I do this. I do a politicking twice a week. I do Larry King now three times a week. I do a podcast with my wife. Wow. Um, do you, now, do you like doing a podcast with your wife? Do you like it, or did she make you no, do it? No, that's a lot of laughs. Oh, you do enjoy Total it? laughs, we do. Okay. Oh, it's hysterical. Yeah, and, it's very funny. It's just a lot of laughs. Not unplanned. We just sit and wing it. And a lot of people don't realize that you were a radio host for so long, because so many people just know you from uh, from, from television. But you, yeah. how, how many years did you actually host a radio show? Oh, I started in 1957 and retired in, from radio in 97, so I was 40 years on the radio. And you remember and I when... I started you... the first national talk show. You did? Yep, and... Mutual Radio Network in 1978. And do you, who was your first, I mean, I'm sure it was back in the 50s, who was your first really big guest that you had to sit down with and talk to for a while? Bobby Darren. A great singer and a marvelous talent. Uh, he was working at a hotel in Miami Beach, and I was doing a morning show at a restaurant. And he just popped in, and uh, he had been listening. He was an early riser, and uh, he'd been listening. And then others started to come in: Danny Thomas, Jimmy Hoffa. Ed you interviewed Sullivan. Jimmy Hoffa three times, yeah, and Jackie Robinson three times. What would guys like Jimmy Hoffa talk about? Was he talking about the union or, or what, what, what was so... Well, we uh, talked about everything. We talked about what was it like to 
grow up. You know, he never drove a truck. He was a handler on the. He would he would load trucks in Detroit. Uh, he had an incredible memory. Jimmy Hoffa was a inter- very interesting guy. He called. He referred to himself by his own name. He was said Hoffa says. Oh, really? <laughs> I interviewed him before. I interviewed him before he went to prison and when he got out of prison. But he was a tough. He was not in it for the money. He was in it for power. And given all his faults, he loved his union members. He uh, he took care. Remember, I interviewed a teamster once who said, "Listen, if I was supposed to be making." I was making a dollar an hour when he took over. I'm making four dollars an hour. If it's supposed to be four and a quarter, and Jimmy's keeping a quarter, let him give me five dollars an hour. He can keep half a dollar. They just right. They just worshipped him. They they loved so what he did I for always, them. I always looked at people from both sides. I try to walk in other people's shoes, which made me a good interviewer because I I try to understand the whys of people. Why do people do what they do? Evil people don't wake up in the morning and think they're evil. Right. In other words, when they comb their hair, they don't say to myself, I am a bad person. Right. They rationalize everything they do. So you got to try to come at it from their perspective. And when you interviewed Jackie Robinson, I didn't realize you talked to him too. Um, what was his perspective on what was happening in, in baseball and how he was? It's funny, they just put one of his hats up for auction, which was a hat that had a certain lining in it. So, because he was always getting pelted with things, it was different than the other major leaguers' hats. Jackie was an extraordinary guy. At first, as a child, I was at his first game. I was 13 years old oh, wow. in Brooklyn, and I sat up in the bleachers and got to interview him twice later in life. He was a—he was not the Jackie of the first two years. The Jackie of the first two years had to be calm, couldn't get excited, couldn't get angry. But the Jackie after that was incredible. Um... He was a tough leader. He was uh, a bench jockey. He w- he would um, he would slide into his own mother. He was a vicious <laughs> ball player. He was uh, like a like Bob Gibson was as a pitcher. He was as a as an infielder. He was uh, there was nothing like him. I remember he said to me, "Don't put me in my grave with promises." Don't tell me my son will have a fair shot at life. You give it to me now. I don't need promises. So he was a much more uh, definitively angry or stronger guy than than he he was allowed to show. He was an angry, intelligent, vocal uh, leader who would have been a major, major force. In fact, when I interviewed Martin Luther King, I... uh, said that I introduced him as the founder of the Civil Rights Movement. He said, no, Jackie Robinson is the founder of the Civil Rights Movement. When, did you ever uh, interview Malcolm X? Major, major four. Did you ever interview Malcolm X? Oh, twice. Malcolm <sighs> X was another extraordinary, no extraordinary figure. He was so bright and so uh, forceful, and uh, he had that uh, striking look, he had that red hair. And uh, I liked Malcolm X a lot, and of course he changed quite a bit. I interviewed him when he was more angry and then when he went over to Africa and came back and was more understanding of whites and blacks and, of course, the tragedy of his assassination. But, Do you yeah, think- well, you know, when you've interviewed 60,000 people and you've been doing something for almost 60 years, just by osmosis you run into all these people. <laughs> now, but you're so interesting, though, because it's rare that I get to talk to somebody who who really has such a firsthand 
uh, experience with uh, American history in the last 60 years by talking to these guys. And when you interviewed Martin Luther King Jr. and then you interview Malcolm X, what was the difference between these guys in person or when you were in the room talking to them? Martin Luther King Jr. was very much a uh, believer, was very much a religious person. Um, Malcolm X was not a religious person. Uh, you understand both Wait. very much. Malcolm X, Malcolm X said to me... Malcolm was not a religious Andrew, person? A religious, well, in his own religion. I wouldn't call him as a religion. Well, he certainly wasn't Christian. <laughs> but he was, uh, he was more... Malcolm X would have fought back. Martin Luther King wouldn't have fought back. Malcolm X, if you hit him, he would not turn the other cheek. No. King Jr. would turn the other cheek. But Malcolm X said to me, imagine what it's like to be a, a Negro kid and never see yourself. You know, you're never in commercials. You're never on television. You know, there's no black Santa Claus. Imagine what that's like. And it got me to thinking, imagine what it's like. And uh, he made me really think, and I, I was always a liberal, but he made me think beyond that of what it's like to be a Negro in America in the 1960s. To grow up with no role models visible on... on t- it's, it's a, yeah, lot of, a lot of gay not, people say the same thing. They say we don't see any role models, people representing who we are on television. Yeah, well, that's changing. In fact, that's changing faster than the black movement change, which is amazing. The most amazing thing to me is how quick changes are have occurred. Uh, who would have said 10 years ago that gay marriage would be accepted? Why do you think it's changing faster now than it did? Because the, the children are moving it along. The young people saw the hypocrisy of the older people. How ridiculous we were to judge people by their sexual orientation or the color of their skin. They can't put the... What, 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 was that a joke? Right. They don't understand it. So that they move it faster, and that's what a, a lot of politicians don't see. This movement is moving faster than the politicians see it. And you've interviewed... So they, they missed it. It's, it's funny, Larry, because you're talking about interviewing Malcolm X before, I guess, before and after he went to Mecca. Did you, you've interviewed Ali, I'm sure. Did you talk to him uh, when oh. he was younger with, with uh, Elijah Muhammad and then later on in, in years? How many times did you talk to him? Oh, a hundred. <laughs> you did, Ali, right? I interviewed him when he first won the Olympics. When he was Cassius Clay, I was with him the day of the weigh-in with Sonny Liston. He trained in Miami Beach, and that's where my career started. Ali was a was a just one of the greatest people I've ever known. He was a wonderful man, caring, funny, uh, a true world figure. Uh, Ali knew his... He took my son Andy to Vegas with him when he fought Quarry. Wow. And uh, Was that like 78? The, yeah, in the middle of the fifth round, he was in a clinch and he leaned over and my son was in the third row and he yelled, is this a way to make a living? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. That was Ali. <laughs> and just to, you know, we're talking obviously Larry King, and just uh, to let people know, I want to reiterate where they can see uh, Larry's show. And uh, where can they find it? It's on uh, aura.tv slash Larry King now, and also on hulu.com. Congratulations. And uh, when, when, do epi- on hulu.com. when do episodes and on come RT, out? RT Cable Network. Okay. And, uh, and when do yeah. episodes uh, come out, new episodes? They come out every day at, I think, 2 o'clock, and then, they're, of course, they're there in perpetuity. And it's uh, we're seen on Politicking twice a week and Larry King now three times a week. So this is the election night. I'll be doing a special for RT, uh, which is seen all over the world. So we're seen all over the world. It's uh, 
been a hell of a career, I'll tell you. you, you it's oh, a, yeah. you're one of my favorite people to talk to uh, because you just you 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 know everybody who I want to know. Uh, we really, I really want to meet. <laughs> you know, you've interviewed the presidents, you've interviewed the senators, the congressmen. As far as the presidents are concerned, or people in power, who is somebody you spoke to? And I'm sure there was more than one. Who is somebody you spoke to who who has influence? Who you felt this person is lying to me right now? Oh, a few people. Uh, you try to win the way through it. You try to get to the truth. If someone's deep into a lie and you don't have proof, then it's just a feeling. So sometimes a lot of politicians you feel are skirting the truth or lying to you. You do your best you can. If you've got the goods, you go to the goods. If you don't have the goods, you can presume it. And then I always let the audience make up its mind. I try to ask the best questions, listen. The most important thing is listening. Follow up with good questions. And uh, and I'll let the chips fall where they may. Um, and the audience can make up their mind. I never interjected myself. I never used the word I. When I was interviewing something, I thought or somebody. I thought I was irrelevant. Uh, I was the conduit. The they, the guests went through me to the audience. Well, when you look at something like uh, Frost Nixon. And that amazing uh, four-day interview he did with Richard Nixon, he finally got him to admit what he wanted him to on the fourth day. Do you go into interviews like that where you're like, There's, this is the point I want to get to with this person in an hour, not four days, and then you're disappointed? I when never you- had. I, I, I love David Frost. He was a great friend, and I knew Nixon. I have never had an agenda. I never went on the air saying, I'm going to get this guy and not get this guy. I'm going to, I do, I'm going to do the best I can to learn everything I can. Without an agenda, I was not there to embarrass. I was not there to extol. I was not there to praise. I was not there to demean. I was there to learn. My object as an interviewer was to know more than I did before and to bring that exchange of information to the listening or viewing audience. Do you think that's why they trusted you so much, uh, whether it was a politician or an actor or just a pop culture figure? Oh, absolutely. I'd love to be called back to moderate one of these debates. Uh, <laughs> you would. That was right up. That was right up my alley, and I know both Trump and Hillary for thirty years each. So I'd be very fair. I'm always fair. And well, uh, what do you think about like the climate? It. I mean, it, it's a bizarre. It's a bizarre uh, event. Every day, something new is popping up. If it's not him saying something stupid, it's her stupid emails. I mean, have you ever seen anything like this in politics? Uh, never. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. There's just. Uh, but she's the most as as. Obama said she's the most qualified person ever to run for president. No one ever had a, a dossier like hers. I mean, she's she's an incredible woman, and he's an incredible guy in his own forte. He's gone a little berserk, uh, <laughs> to say the least. I don't know where he's coming from. If you let him loose, you know, Donald's Donald's not a bad guy. He's not a racist, but something's happened to him, and I don't know what it is. It's messianic. It's uh, uh, I, if I were Hillary, I wouldn't even campaign. Well, that's an interesting thing you just said about her being the most qualified. You know, I, I'm to be honest, I'm up in the air about who I'm going to vote for. But when what is this visceral reaction against her? People have like people I have who no idea. Do you, but have she's you noticed the, it? She's, she's one, of, of course, but she's one of the finest, the funniest, down to earth women. Certainly, one of the brightest people I've ever known, and. Uh, she was a hell of a senator. People forget that. She was a very good Secretary of State. The email thing, I don't understand why she did that. It makes no sense to me why she... But uh, hey, we all do stupid things in life. Yeah, it was a stupid thing. But, I agree. Uh, but she's... Uh, if you had a resume, if you were applying for the job... Oh, God, so 
like a joke. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, uh, uh, hey, uh, off the subject too with with, with politics. Did you ever interview uh, John F. Kennedy? I bumped into his car once. <laughs> did you really? In, in Palm Beach, Florida. Yeah, I hit him. I hit him. Bumped into him on a sunny, beautiful Sunday morning. Oh, I think you were walking. Were you driving? You hit JFK. <laughs> I was driving and he was driving and we were the only two cars on the road. And I was looking up at the new, I was a kid and uh, he came out. I said, do you want to change licenses? He says, no, but I'm going to run for president in two years. And I want all four of you guys to vote for me. Swear you'll vote for me. <laughs> wow. So we, we swore we'd vote for him. And by the way, I've interviewed some, you know, I've interviewed your two female stars of your sport. Oh, you've interviewed Rhonda uh, and uh, who was the other? Uh, Holly. The girl who beat her. Oh, Holly Holm. And I've interviewed some men. And it's a wild sport, your sport. It really is. I mean, it, it and it's getting so. Uh, it's probably, what, it get bought for $4 billion? $4 billion, yeah. I got a big percentage of that. They offered me 10% to host the podcast, which I thought was a nice deal. It worked out well for me. $400 million. <laughs> Yeah, well. And what did you think of Rhonda well, when you the, interviewed I her? The, oh, I liked them both a lot. I liked, I liked them. I, I liked them. I think they were really with it. Uh, they were courageous. They were honest. And the sport itself, Larry, because you, you've, you've talked to so many boxers. Um, do, did you see any difference between the, uh, the fighters and the UFC you've talked to and, and the boxers, the mentality that goes into that? Did you see any difference, or did they just remind you of each other? They reminded me a little of each other, although the UFC people, uh, they, they like pain more. <laughs> you know, you think boxers like pain, but as Ali told me many times, I want to get hurt. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to avoid <laughs> getting hit. to kill me. Um, but the UFC, but the, some of the UFCs have been very honest, you know, like, uh, how would they do against a boxer? Ronda Rousey said she would have had a tough time with Mayweather. <laughs> Not if she could take him down, she wouldn't have. I mean, tell you, if they had to stand up and uh -huh, box. She, you got to find him first. That's a good point. Yeah, he's a very slippery man. But if she was allowed to grab him around and, the waist, I'd she's take never, She's never, she's never been hit by a professional boxer. Uh, she's hit by other UFC people, but professional boxers are lethal weapons. If a boxer hits you, they go to jail. Um, yeah, we've, we've never we've never tested it, but MMA, hey, you can't deny its popularity. Well, it was tested once. Randy Couture fought James Tony, and uh, Couture. Uh, I think Tony was actually a couple of years younger than Couture, and Couture really, you know, he took him down. I think it was a single leg takedown, and, and he killed him. I, I think that the, the element of being able to kick and being able to grab is what makes the, the UFC fighters so well, much more dangerous. That's street fighting. Yeah, I mean, with rules. But, uh, you know, anyone facing Floyd Mayweather in a stand-up just boxing match is in deep trouble. But, you know, Floyd Jim, Mayweather I gets... I gotta run. You, you better run. I gotta go to work. Although, yeah. you know what, Larry? Tyson, uh, you know, Tyson doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for guys like Floyd Mayweather. He thinks he's a scared person. Uh, he hasn't lost. <laughs> no, he has it. But then again, neither did Julio Cesar Chavez for like 80-something fights. I think he's pretty underrated when you look back on his career. And Tyson may have been overrated. I love Mike. But Mike was a street fighter, club fighter. Do you think he was overrated? He's or he just defensive. He just fought the overrated. guys they put in front of him. Good, good club fighter who was not a good defensive fighter. I don't know. I thought he had very good moments. What's that? Jim, I got to run. Oh, no. I was just about to argue about Mike Tyson. Uh, Larry, I love you. I really... <laughs> got to go to work. We could do it again. Reschedule it. I would like that a lot. I, I think you're awesome, okay. I, and I think you're a great broadcaster. Larry King now. It's on Aura Thanks, TV. Man. What's that? I said, thank you. I got to run. Okay. Larry's shutting me up in the middle of the plug. All right, Larry. Thank you for calling Thanks, in. James. All right, buddy. <laughs> I've never actually had somebody scold me in the middle of the plug. Larry's like, I got to go. <laughs> but maybe he has to tape.
How long was he on for? Uh, maybe 15 minutes. I, I always want to talk in person, but you see there's always little disconnects. I do like him, though, but I, I disagree that Tyson was overrated. Because Tyson did fight, you know, he didn't fight Ernie Shavers, but he fucking murdered these guys. Yeah, well, and that's, look, you can't mess with his style at a certain point. It's like that you put that guy in the ring, he's going to go after you, and, and that's it. He's looking for the knockout. So. And, and I don't disagree. That, I disagree that Tyson was a, was a bad defensive fighter. He wasn't a bad defensive fighter. I think he was a very underrated boxer. He was a great power puncher. And he, you know, he literally would almost squat down in shitting position and then come up and drill your face into the ceiling fan. But uh, you know, Tyson was extremely fast. What they call that peekaboo style that he got from Customato? He was not at all a bad defensive fighter. He was hard to hit. He ducked and he moved and he ducked and he moved and he was a very, very difficult target to land uh, a punch on. So I disagree with Larry on that. This is what you do after your guest hangs up. You say what you would have said if they didn't. Larry rushed me off the phone, but I did enjoy Larry King and. I'm glad he called in. That's unbelievable, by the way. Like you could mention mm-hmm. any person, dead or alive, and he's yeah. like, "Yeah, talk to him." Yeah, <laughs> I mentioned Barabbas from the Bible, and he said he talked to him. I didn't believe it. I think Larry's bullshit. But yeah, he's interesting. Malcolm X. I didn't realize he interviewed. Did he? Do you think he mixed up Malcolm X and Martin Luther King? Because he said Mal- well, Malcolm X wasn't religious, but he really was. He was a hardcore uh, Nation of Islam uh, preacher. I think he meant more like day to day. It was, you know, yes, it might have been something that he was you know, out there talking about, but like living it, like he's saying, turn the other cheek. Martin Luther King would actually turn the other cheek. Well, Malcolm X wasn't a Christian. I mean, he, he was a fucking, uh, the FBI, at least in, in X, they were, they were bugging both of them. And I think they said that, uh, this guy's a monk compared to Martin Luther King. I guess I heard Martin Luther King was a more of a womanizer, which I would have been. If I could speak like that, I have a dream. All I do is fuck girls. So I heard he was womanizer. I don't know if it was true, but Malcolm X was, I think a much more religious Guy, that's my take. But then again, Larry talked to them, so I'll shut my fat face. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm speculating. All right, guys. I think today was a success. Joe was great. Larry King was great. I'll, you know, a little snippy at the end there. I gotta go, Jim. <laughs> oh, I wish Matt was here. I hope Matt doesn't hear this shit. Now I'll never be out looking for a fight. Dana will be like, you couldn't even get Larry King to be happy about his plug. I'm gonna get fired. Check me out on jimnorton.com. Please, uh, if you want to come see me, I have a lot of gigs. Nyack, fucking Australia. A million places. Um, Buffalo, New York, Minnesota, and Pittsburgh. I cannot wait to get out there and see you fuckers. And thank you, Chris, for your help. I think this was a good success. Oh, absolutely. Pleasure I want in-studio guests. Except Joe. You could talk to Joe on the phone all day. But it's like the eye contact thing. Yeah. Chris and I wink at each other a lot. All right, guys. Goodbye. This has been a... NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.